thank you to the ancestors because there was this feeling of guilt in the pit of my stomach that kept saying, how dare you? You were given a gift that you say is your purpose and you are being given this language and these stories to be told, surely not just out of the ether, but from these ancestors who want you to witness on their behalf. So how dare you not write this story? You're just writing the story. You didn't have to endure it. Wow. You better write. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Today's guest is the author of one of the most stunning books I've read in recent years, which is also our very first Good Ancestor Book Club pick. I'm so excited to share this joyful conversation with the New York Times bestselling author of the novel, The Prophets. Please welcome Robert Jones Jr. Robert is a writer from Brooklyn, New York, which is where he also earned his BFA and MFA. In this conversation, we talk about Robert's journey from working in HR to founding the social justice community Son of Baldwin, as well as his 14-year journey of writing The Prophets, his debut novel about the forbidden union between two enslaved young men on a deep south plantation. Robert and I will be back in conversation for our Members Only Good Ancestor Book Club event, which you can find out more about at goodancestorbookclub.com. But in the meantime, enjoy this incredible conversation, which I'm so honored to have been a part of. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today is a very, very exciting episode for two reasons. Firstly, because of our guest, I'm here in conversation with Robert Jones Jr., somebody who I have fangirled over for a number of years. I don't know if he knows that, but I've <laughs> fangirled over his writing for a number of years. And secondly, because Robert Jones Jr. and his book, The Prophets, is our inaugural book for the Good Ancestor Book Club, a brand new offering that we our beginning, which is bringing together, pairing together our amazing author guests from the podcast and our beautiful Patreon community in a book club. And so we'll be here today in conversation with Robert about his journey and a bit of the book. And then in a couple of weeks time, we'll be having a book club event for our members, our book club members in our Patreon community, where we'll be going even deeper into the conversation sharing some spoilers, analyzing some of the characters, going deeper into the themes, and also giving our members the opportunity to ask Robert questions too, which I think is going to be really, really exciting. So please join me in welcoming Robert to the show. Welcome, Robert. Layla, thank you so much for having me. You have no idea how much of a tremendous honor this is. Thank you very much for having me. Oh my goodness. The honor is completely ours. 
I mentioned that I've been fangirling over your writing for a few years. I, like many people, first discovered you on Facebook when I was still on Facebook. I'm not there anymore. And actually, that I think is one of the losses that I had when I left Facebook is that I didn't get to see much of your writing anymore, not realizing that you were actually on Instagram, which is where I spend most of my time. And so when I saw your book on Instagram and I'd seen that we had the same UK publisher, I freaked out, immediately sent a message to them and said, please get me a copy of this book. I love him. And I'll I'll tell you that the first thought I had when I saw it was, oh, wow, they are really lucky to be publishing him because whatever is in this book, I know that it's going to be incredible. And I was so happy for them (laughs) that they got you. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. This whole experience, you know, I have to be honest, I have not yet internalized the idea that I am a published author because this had been such a long held dream. Mm. So again, I want to say thank you for that testimony that you just shared, because for me, this is still such a surreal experience. It must be. And I can't wait to talk about this more because this is your debut book and it is a New York Times bestseller. It has been shouted out by celebrities. I've seen it everywhere. And I want as many people to get their hands on this book as possible. So we're going to start this conversation as we do with every guest with our opening question. Who are some of the ancestors, living or transitioned, familial or societal, who've influenced you on your journey? Oh my, there are so many. In terms of societal, as you can see, I have my spiritual godmother and spiritual godfather, Toni Morrison and James Baldwin behind me on the wall. Yes. And they have had the greatest impact on me in terms of how I think about writing, how I think about politics in general, but particularly how I approach literature, both as a writer and as a reader. They have had the greatest impact on me. And then there's a whole line, particularly of Black women writers, who have had an enormous impact on the way I craft words, on the way I think about crafting people in these worlds, the way I world build from Octavia Butler to Gloria Naylor, Zora Neale Hurston, Tony Cade Bambara, Alice Walker. There are just so many of those women who had a tremendous impact on me. And then of course, there are my own family members. If you read the prophet, you'll see it opens with a dedication to my ancestors. Some of them are recent ancestors, like my cousins, but others who have passed on and transitioned years ago, like my grandmothers and my grandfathers and my great uncles and aunts, who I think have guided me throughout this entire process, who have protected me and whispered in my ear so that I might have at my fingertips their testimony that I can share. Mm. Oh, it's so beautiful. And it's so reflective of the energy that is in the prophets, which I want to dive into in a little while. But I want to start this conversation with your journey. You are known as being the founder, the creator of the community called Son of Baldwin. And I think for many of us, I know for myself, I knew the name Son of Baldwin, didn't necessarily know the name Robert Jones Jr. because you sort of had created this amazing community that represented more than yourself as an individual. Can you tell us about that community, how it started and what your intention was behind there and sort of the influence of James Baldwin? Absolutely. 
I was introduced to James Baldwin rather late in my life. I was one of those returning college students. So I went back to college as an adult to pursue my passion, which is writing. So I was about 31 years old when I restarted as a freshman in college. And that was when I was introduced to James Baldwin. I was taking a course called People, Power, and Politics. And one of the assignments was to read an essay by James Baldwin called Here Be Dragons. And I had heard the name James Baldwin growing up, but I didn't really know anything about him, really. My education in the United States, there's no emphasis on Black politicians or or Black authors or Black artists. It's mostly white people that we learn about. So I didn't learn much about James Baldwin. But I read this essay as a freshman. And I was utterly blown away by the sheer brilliance and wisdom just contained in these few pages. So I went and started searching everything I could find about James Baldwin and discovered he was Black, he was queer, he lived in New York City, and he was a writer. All of the things that I wanted to be or that I was. And what was that moment like for you in having that sort of recognition of like, this is me, this is who I am. It was almost like finding a religion. It was a spiritual experience. Like I felt confirmed Mm. as a human being because you know, you grow up as a black queer person thinking that you're invalid, that you're somehow an aberration or you're sinful. And then you discover through somebody like James Baldwin, that you belong, that you are part of the human landscape. And in such a way that's so beautiful and brilliant, he wrote so beautifully and so brilliantly that you're just overcome with emotion. And I immediately adopted him as my spiritual godfather. I was devastated to learn that he had passed on because I was hoping he was still alive because I wanted to meet him and talk to him but discovered that he had passed on in 1987, I believe it was. And I went and devoured everything I could find by him and was struck because this was like 2002 by how he was not part of the cultural conversation, that he wasn't a bigger name, that people weren't talking about his work as much. And I said, why? Why he's so smart and so important? And I watched a documentary about him on PBS, where toward the end of the documentary, his brother talked about some of his last words before he passed on. And one of the things he said that was like a gut punch was that James said, I hope that they find me in the wreckage. Wow. And I thought, yes, we have to dig in this wreckage and find him. So I am going to do something about this. I'm going to start a blog where we discuss James Baldwin and all of the subjects that he touched upon, race and gender and gender identity and sexuality and whiteness and love. And we are going to bring these subjects to the forefront in a way that he would have through his lens Mm -hmm. as a Black queer man living abroad and from the United States. And in about 2007, 2008, I started on Blogspot, a blog entitled Son of Baldwin. Well, it's wild to think how young the internet is, right? (laughs) So back in 2008, like, what was it like 
creating that, I mean, it's a completely different experience to what sort of Baldwin has become. What was it like back then and sort of gathering that audience and sharing that with a small community? It was so different. Blogspots lived in its sort of own space where mm. people could comment on what you posted, but there was not the same level of engagement as you find now. There was no such thing as Twitter. Right. There was no such thing as Instagram um, when this was started. Facebook was only available to people who were college students. So it was an entirely different landscape. And it was just so different, so quiet and so small. I'm sure so pure as well, right? In a way that <laughs> that maybe it, it's not the same right now, right? You had your troll here and your troll there, right. but it was not the level of trollosity <laughs> <laughs> as there is now. Yeah. And you really didn't have a good sense of whether this information was being received. Mm. So you just posted sort of in a vacuum of a sort. And, you know, so I was posting about James Baldwin and about his words and about his works and similar or works that had come as a result of the path he paved. Mm. So we would talk about like Joseph Beam and Marlon Riggs and Audre Lorde and people like that too. And then in 2008, 2009, Facebook sort of opened its space up so that anybody could be a part of, of Facebook, not just people who are students. Right. And so I said, let me see if this will work. I'll transition it to Facebook and we'll see what happens. And that is where it suddenly caught on, where word of mouth, people just started joining and becoming part of the conversation. And me as Robert Jones, I was a character in the background. Right. No one knew, knew who Son of Baldwin was. And I didn't realize it was this big mystery. Right. <laughs> Did you not? No. Until right. Kiese Lehman, the great Kiese Lehman, we became friends on Facebook as Robert Jones Jr. and mm. Kiese Lehman. And then I, we were talking and he goes, so what do you do? And I was like, well, I run and created Son of Baldwin. And he said, ah! <gasps> You are son of Baldwin? And I said, yeah. And he was like, it's like finding out that Clark Kent was Superman. Right. <laughs> and I said, really? Was this a big thing? People were wondering about this? And he said, yes, it was a great mystery. Mm. So that transition was really interesting. It was, it was quite interesting. And can I ask, in having the name as son of Baldwin, as opposed to you, Robert Jones Jr. being the front, did that provide some sort of protective boundary for you as an individual? Or, I mean, it doesn't sound like it was something intentional, but I'm wondering, especially compared to where your career is now, where we all know who Robert Jones Jr. is now, right? Was there a level of anonymity there that was helpful for you? Or how did you perceive that? You know, it's a two-sided coin. Mm. On the one hand, it did provide a level of anonymity and safety so that people did not know who I was. So they wouldn't do these awful things like they do, like the doxing where they put your personal information right. out on the internet, which is very dangerous. So it provided a sort of protection from that. But it also opened me up to a level of criticism that perhaps I would not have been opened up to if I wasn't saying son of Baldwin, because people were like, how dare you think that you're even in the same orbit 
as someone wow. as great as James Baldwin. How dare you do this? How dare you use his name and then you fall so short of his brilliance? That's a lot because I have never perceived Son of Baldwin as you comparing yourself to him or wanting to claim him as yours or that you are the one who owns his legacy in some kind of way. Rather, I saw it as this is somebody who's really inspired by James Baldwin. That was certainly the intention. It's interesting. Yeah. The intention was to pay homage to Baldwin's legacy and all the rich art and thinking that he left us to engage it. Um, that was the entire point. I was in no way, I could not touch the hem of James Baldwin's garments, but I love and adore him. And I see myself as a spiritual child of his wonderful works, of his wonderful personhood, mm. of his wonderful humanity. And that's what I was simply trying to pay tribute to. I was in no way trying to say I was on his level because right. there are very few people who are. Who are. And <laughs> the other thing, though, that I find interesting about it is that we have these great literary ancestors who we look towards. I mean, you mentioned Audre Lorde. Longtime listeners of the podcast know I find her to be my spiritual godmother, right? But we're so different in so many ways. But the thing about leaving behind a body of work, it transcends so much, right? It transcends so much. And, and my hope is anything that I write, anything that I create, that anyone after I'm gone will be able to connect to it and find themselves in it or be able to find comfort or inspiration. And I think that there's that conversation between Oprah and Maya Angelou where Oprah told Maya, you know, I, building these schools in South Africa, this will be my legacy. And Maya Angelou says, you have no idea what your legacy is going to be. Your legacy is going to be every single soul that you touch, right? And we don't even know how we're touching people. Right. And so I find it interesting how we have these good ancestors. I mean, I, that's what I call them, right? Good ancestors who we look towards, we read their writings, we look at how they live their lives. We find some comfort, some direction in that. And yet we try and tell other people, it's not that way. You can't do it that, it should be this way, right? right. I think, you know, they transcend. I 100% agree that I don't claim exclusive right to Baldwin's legacy. Mm. I just wanted people to know how much I love and adore him and how great his work was and what he left us was something that should be savored and adored. Yes. So you, you went back to school as an adult, you went back to college and what was that process like and sort of making the journey? Because I understand it took you 14 years to write The Prophets. Talk to us about that and thank you for sticking with it because <laughs> it's an amazing book, but Talk to us about that journey. Well, at the time, right before I was returning to school, I was working for Bank of America. Wow. Okay. And I was in their human resource department. And it was a wonderful job for the most part, but I was not feeling fulfilled. I had this sense in my gut that I wasn't living up to my potential, that I was sort of being too safe and too lazy to follow what was clearly my purpose and dream. 
And so I think I sort of self-sabotaged myself at work. I wound up getting fired and I'm sitting at home and I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time, not in Brooklyn, New York, which is my home and where I I grew up. And I was thinking, what what am I going to do next? I started like, you know, preparing my resume to go find another job with some other bank or something to that nature, some other HR department. And then you mentioned Oprah earlier. I was watching the Oprah Winfrey show and she had on this guest who said, what you need to be doing is following your purpose and to follow your purpose. Don't think of the last step because it's going to seem daunting. If you think of the last step, it's going to seem like impossible. Think of just the next step you have to take in order to move in the direction of your purpose. Wow. So I went on the internet and I said, what do you have to do to become a writer? And I couldn't really find that information. I don't even think Google existed back then. So it was like (laughs) Ask Jeeves or something to that nature. Information wasn't readily available that quickly at your fingertips. Right. So I was at the unemployment office and um, they had this sign and it said, if you want to be a, then you have to do this. Mm. So I said, let me look and see if they have writer. And they did toward the bottom. It said, if you want to be a writer, then you have to go to college and study writing or English. Uh, English. Yeah. So I said, I have to go back to college because I had gone to college previously, but not finished. I was not very successful. I kept dropping out because of deep insecurities about my abilities and also personal issues that I was having as a person coming to understand himself as both Black and queer. So those things sort of interfered. And here I was, 31 years old, in the unemployment office, and this sign was in my face. And I take it as a sign Mm. that this was what I had to do. So I called my mother and I said, mom, I want to move back to Brooklyn. She said, your room is still here. I said, I'm going to go back to school to become a writer. So I packed up all my stuff and drove back to Brooklyn, New York and enrolled in college. And what was that? Having gone to college and not completed it, what were some of the thoughts that were running through your mind about, okay, I'm going to try this again? Obviously, you were at a different time of your life. I'm guessing much more clear about who you are, what your values are, what's important to you. But also, I mean, it's a degree, right? So it's a real commitment. What were some of the thoughts that were running through your mind? Because I'm really thinking about like some of our listeners who may be thinking that, yeah, this is something that I want to do, but I have all of these doubts and these fears. I was terrified to go back to school because I thought, I'm too old. I should be ashamed that I didn't get my degree at 21 when you're supposed to get your bachelor's degree. Right. When you're apparently supposed to know everything about what your path's going to be at 21, right? (laughs) And I was scared to, to go back. I felt a deep sense of shame being so much older and going back to school as an older student. But there was also this drive in me that said, but you now know why you're here. Mm. When you were there before, you didn't know why. And you were, my first major that I was declaring was psychology. And then it was history when I tried again. So I was circling the thing and not going for the thing because I never had the sense that writing 
even though it was something that I felt deeply and strongly about. It was one of the first things I ever did was write as a child. Yeah. And it was something that made me feel like a whole person, like something where I felt like I was being my best self. Yeah. But I never was, no one ever told me that you could practice that and that could be your profession or your purpose. I always felt like my family being blue collar was like, yeah, yeah, that's a nice little hobby, but you have to do this to earn money, to make a living. And so I never had the kind of support that made me think that I could do it. But as this 31-year-old, now enrolling as a freshman in college, I had a clear sense of purpose. It was never any doubt about, I am going to declare creative writing or English as my major, Mm. and I am going to do as well as I possibly can in every course. I'm going to treat every one of these courses as though the goal has to be an A and anything less than an A feels like an F. And I, the lowest grade I got was an A minus during this run. Wow. And that felt like an F. So when I would get A minuses, I would argue with the professors. How did I get an A minus? What could I have done differently to have gotten an A in this course? You know, so my purpose was absolutely clear. What I also had to do though is remember, I still had to somehow earn a living because I wasn't going to just live off of my mother. I wanted to help her with the household bills and things of that nature. So I got three part-time jobs as I was an undergraduate student working. Wow. As an undergraduate student. So I I had a job as a tutor of English, a job as a English counselor, counseling new English majors at the school, And I also worked at the Scholastic store in the bookstore because I needed something that was going to ensure that all of the things that I was doing were working toward being a writer under the umbrella of being a writer. So I did those three things throughout my undergraduate time. And what I found out was this was the time that I was supposed to be in college, not when I was 18, not when I was 21. But when I was 31, that was the right time for me because I knew why I was there. And I didn't know when I was 18 why I was there. I was just doing it because when you graduate high school, you go to college. Yes. It says so much about how the sort of traditional route is something that we're all made to believe that we're supposed to do A, B, C, D, and E, that there's this route that we're all supposed to take. I resonate so much with your story, although we are very different in that I always felt like I was being my best self when I was writing, but also didn't know that there was a path to becoming a writer and also came from an immigrant family where writing is not an option. It's lawyer, doctor, engineer, right? Like those are the options. (laughs) So, (laughs) So the first person to ever like tell me you are a writer, I think that's what you should be pouring your energy into was my husband. We got married when I was 24. So that's very long into my journey, but I was still very much, no, 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 I'm here to do other things, not to do that. I thought I was supposed to be a life coach. I thought I was supposed to be a trainer, a speaker, not a writer. And so my journey as a writer started a lot later. And I know that when I've seen other people and they're like, I have a BFA and an MFA. And I'm like, wow, like, what if I had had that at 21? But it's like you said, right? We don't know what the end is going to be. And if we think about that at the beginning, it's very overwhelming and very complicated. And sometimes 
life has a different path for us, right? I studied law. Like I don't, I'm so far away from that <laughs> from that degree, yet it gave me many things that were very, very helpful. May I ask what your ethnic background is, like where your people from? Yes. So my mother is from Zanzibar in East Africa off of Tanzania. My dad is from Kenya. Their families also have roots in Oman. And my parents met in Wales, in Cardiff, which is where I was born and grew up. I grew up in Cardiff and then in Tanzania and then in Cardiff and then in England and now here in Qatar. Oh my goodness. And you know what? The reason why I ask is because in the Black diaspora, mm-hmm. there are certain cultures where your choices are, okay, so are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer? Which one? Right. That's it. <laughs> right. And I picked the law. I picked the law route. And honestly, it was only until I became a best-selling author that my mother has stopped telling people that I'm a lawyer. Even though I've never been a law, I've never been a lawyer ever. I have a law degree. She clung on to it. But it's it's just so interesting coming back to your story about timing and the timing of our lives and trusting the timing of our lives because we don't necessarily know that if had you completed college at 21, even with a BFA, that you would necessarily be here now with the profits. We don't know that. I would say that we would not be here. Mm. because I I had not yet had the requisite life experience to come to a project like The Profits. It would have taken me quite a long time. I would have probably been discouraged because here, if I would have gotten my BFA at 21 and not had the skill to write something like that or to come toward something like this, these issues... I would have been frustrated and thought, you know, I made a wrong decision by thinking that I was a writer. And at first I thought I was a poet and I was a really terrible poet. (laughs) I've tried, I've dabbled in that as well. I'm like, no, it turns out no, (laughs) but we have to find our voice. Right. And you are an incredibly poetic writer. And I want to talk about Toni Morrison, but I also want to talk about how did you find the time to write this book. Because as I was reading it, and and sort of for people who don't know, let's give them the background about what The Prophets is about. So if you can share a very short synopsis, what is The Prophets about? The Prophets is about Samuel and Isaiah, two enslaved young men on a plantation in Mississippi during antebellum slavery. They are in love. And The Prophets centers around how that love either transforms, inspires, angers, or even makes envious all of the people around them, whether enslaver or enslaved. And it also delves a little bit back further in time to give Samuel and Isaiah's love a lineage that predates colonial intervention. And so it's all about the transformative power of love and in particular, Black queer love. Thank you. For anyone who's ever read any of Toni Morrison's books, there is a great resonance between Robert's writing and Toni's. I mean, I'm sure you you will say, I don't even come close to her. But as for me, as I was reading it, you know, when you read Toni Morrison's words, you're reading it and you're just like, there's no writer ever like this. Like, how did she do it? How did she tell stories in this way? 
I mean, and it's even hard to describe, right? To even describe what that is. But I will say, Robert, that reading the prophets, it was very reminiscent of Tony for me. And it felt like this moment of, wow, this person exists in the world now. Mm. And they write like this now. And I get to live with them in this lifetime right now, which is, I mean, it just gives me chills just thinking about it. I know that you've had a lot of people share how the prophets is reminiscent of Toni Morrison's writing for them too. What has that been like for you as you hear that? How do you receive that? It's utterly flattering because I personally believe that Toni Morrison is the greatest writer who ever lived. But I also know it's hyperbole Mm -hmm. because I am not as good as Toni Morrison. (laughs) You know, I will spend my life chasing that level of excellence Mm. I don't think that I am as good as Toni Morrison, but I thank people for seeing that I'm attempting to write in that direction. Because for me, what Toni Morrison did, um, I've read every single Toni Morrison novel at least three times. Some I've read more than three times, but at least three times for each novel because Toni Morrison created a new language. She took English and turned it into something else. I call it Morrisonian. Yes. (laughs) Because you can read a sentence and you'll be like, I understand each and every one of these words, but I don't understand this sentence. And I'm not going to stop reading this book until I understand this sentence and what she meant. And then when you do, it's like an explosion. Yeah. Like, oh, what she does is she makes English black. Yes. She makes it black. And so she has retaught me my black linguistic history. So that is what I said when I write The Prophets, I am going to try to write English Black like Toni Morrison did. So in my own way, that's what I'm I'm trying to do. Toni Morrison does it in a a celestial way. And I will forever be chasing that same thing. So when people say, oh, this is reminiscent of Toni Morrison, it absolutely is in the fact that I am chasing her. Mm -mm. (laughs) It is not at her level but I am trying. <laughs> so I'm thankful. Yeah, absolutely. And I want our listeners to know, you know, when I say that, and I know when other people are saying that, we're not saying Robert sounds like Tony. We're saying Robert sounds like Robert in the way that Tony sounds like Tony. And they are, they sort of sit within a similar, yeah, it's that exactly what you said, making English black. It's that same way of expressing the texture of of characters, their interiority, their humanity. You read a sentence and it's both poetic in its description. There's sort of a magic behind it, but there's also moments of humor and sort of cheekiness that you just want to (laughs) reread. You know what I mean? You reread certain sentences just because of the kick you got out of how the words are strung together. And it, it was such a joy to read it. Especially because, you know, The Prophets is not a book that, and we won't be sharing any spoilers mm-hmm. in this episode, so don't worry. But The Prophets isn't a book in which there are these big twists and turns and it's this big action sort of. No, it's a story that is speaks deeply to how people are processing the times that they're in, as well as their relationships with one another. Externally, a lot stays the same. But internally, the way that the characters are 
recalling themselves, their relationship to their past, trying to make sense of the world, their relationships to one another. It is so textured and so layered and just such a pleasure to read. The thing that makes The Prophets so unique is that it is the first time, for me at least, that I'm reading a story about enslaved people, but also this relationship between two men as opposed to a heterosexual relationship. So I want to know, I guess there's a couple of questions that I want to ask, right? One I think I'd asked before, which was how did you make the time to write? And I guess also research this as well, because it is, I imagine, heavily researched to be able to create, you know, a sense of realism and that it's based in historical context. But also, Robert, like how did you need to create the space for yourself to write this? Because it's not just about getting words down. There is a deep level of work I imagine you have had to do within yourself to be able to write a story like this. To tackle your first question, like Toni Morrison said, I wrote at the edges of the day. Hmm. So I would get up at three o'clock in the morning, the witching hour, come to this room, to this, my home office, open up the computer and write for an hour, whatever would come. I would sit there until something came and then go to bed at four o'clock to wake up at six to get ready for work. Wow. And then I would write down things on my commute on the subway or the bus to work and back. And so I was writing around the edges of the day as Toni Morrison put it. And it was hard because I kept telling myself, you're not good enough to tell this story. No one's gonna wanna read this story. It's going to offend people because you are taking this era that people consider sacrosanct and saying, there were queer people there. Mm. And this is something that some Black people don't believe and don't want to hear. And you're also saying that a primary problem in this era is Christianity, something that many Black people hold quite dear. And so I was afraid and nervous and thought that people would not want to read this book. And so in many ways that hindered me. But Thank you to the ancestors because there was this feeling of guilt in the pit of my stomach that kept saying, how dare you? You were given a gift that you say is your purpose and you are being given this language and these stories to be told, surely not just out of the ether, but from these ancestors who want you to witness on their behalf. So how dare you not write this story? You're just writing the story. You didn't have to endure it. Wow. You better write. And there was that thing at the pit of my stomach saying that. And so I would feel guilty when I wasn't writing. So I would get up and write. (laughs) Wow. That last part is really powerful that you didn't have to endure it so you can write it. (laughs) (laughs) They really do be like letting you know, right? (laughs) Boy, if you don't get your behind up there, right? right? Okay, so you're obedient to the calling. It sounds like to me that you understand this is not even about you, Robert. You were created with these gifts, these skills, these talents. If not this, then what? I can see that that gives the impetus to show up and to keep showing up. But in writing, first of all, a story that is set in the antebellum South, right? That is about brutal, terroristic enslavement, chattel slavery. And a story that it's personal. This is not your life experience that you lived. 
Isaiah and Samuel's life, but this is an identity that you hold. There are experiences that I'm sure that you have had around that in a heterosexual dominant world. Like, how do you process this and not let the trauma of it be all that's there? Because there's so much love Mm. in the prophets. There's so much love there. And it's not happy go, like, everything is fine. It was all good, right? It's No, it's this love that transcends, but you're still a witness to the brutality. How do you make that space for you to show up in that space? That's a great question. I was really lucky in that in undergrad, I decided to take Africana studies as a minor. So Africana studies was really crucial because it gave me the education that my major wasn't giving me about Blackness and Black people in the literary and political context. So, and for people, for those of us who haven't studied Africana studies, what is Africana studies about? Africana studies looks at the African diaspora Mm. and looks at all of the ways in which Black people have contributed to society, whether that be through the arts, through politics, through everyday little things. It is is looking at the world through a lens of Afrocentric lens. So I'm learning about Black people in Brazil and in Jamaica and in Nigeria and South Africa and in Britain and realizing that we too have a culture and a history and it is sublime. And the mainstream, whatever they call, who is actually the minority, there are more black people on earth than there are white people. That's right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They sort of erase us in their education system of which those of us who are colonized are a part of. And Africana studies seeks to restore us to our glory. To say, no, you are a central figure in history. You are the creators of civilization. And so we have to teach you what you have been missing, what knowledge you have been missing. And that is essentially what Africana Studies is. That's beautiful. That makes me want to go back to university and studies. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like that was a, a key part in sort of maybe not slipping into the dangers of storytelling when writing about enslavement? Because Toni Morrison was crucial in that. Because when I was reading Beloved, I realized that slavery was the backdrop. Slavery was not the main character. The main character was Setha. And Setha was given a level of interiority that we have never seen in these kinds of stories. I got to know her insides, what it was like to be um, an enslaved person from the inside that you still loved, you feared. You cooked, you cleaned, you laughed. Like all of these things that it wasn't about the whip. Right. Yes, you were whipped, but you were a person, a full whole person. You were not a slave. There was no such thing as a slave. You were enslaved. That was not your fault. That was the fault of the enslaver. Mm. That is his or her sin, not yours. Yeah. So reading slave narratives, particularly incidents in the life of a slave girl by Harriet Jacobs. You get to see not just the menace, but the love, the survival of these people who are my ancestors, who I am descended from, who survived so that I might be here. Mm -hmm. I knew that when I was writing The Prophets. Yes, I I did not want to lie and pretend that slavery was 
all these happy darkies on the cotton field singing songs. Right. Slavery is another name for violence. And I wanted to make sure that all the readers knew this, but I wanted them to also know that there were no such thing as slaves, that these were people mm. and that they had a whole dimensionality that needed to be explored and understood. Because in America, we often say that we have to forgive the enslavers because they didn't know, because that was just the way the system was and they didn't have a moral compass. But I always say the enslaved knew that slavery was wrong. Right. So don't tell me what it was like from the white gaze. I don't care about the white gaze. I want to know how it was from the perspective of those who were on the receiving end. That's right. So yes, it was hard. And I had to do a lot of research to make sure that I got the aspects of that culture correct. But it was mostly in literature where I found the freedom and the um, guidance to give these characters their full humanity. Mm. The prophets, I mean, we can see it from the name, but there's this strong spiritual overtones to the book. And you talk about how Christianity is talked about quite a lot in the book. And again, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I do want to encourage people to join the Good Ancestor Book Club because we are going to go deeper into the themes in the book, into the characters. And you can join us there at patreon.com. Just search for Good Ancestor Podcast. But there are strong spiritual overtones in the book. I'm wondering what your spiritual practice is like and how it maybe supported you in the process of writing this book. I have an interesting spiritual upbringing. My mother's side of the family, um, at least through my grandfather's line, her father's line, is Nation of Islam. Mm. My father's side of the family was African Methodist Episcopalian and Southern Baptist, strong, deeply Christian. Okay. So I grew up in a house where those things were not necessarily competing because there, there were very complementary aspects of both of those religions because Nation of Islam strangely has a, is Muslim, it's Islam, but it also has sort of a Christian aspect to it. Okay. And the way it's practiced, at least here in the States. So I had those two things swirling in my upbringing and I sort of gravitated more toward the Christianity simply because it was less militaristic. It had a rhythm and a song and a beauty and a sort of worship that felt freeing and liberating. Okay. Whereas the other side, um, the, on the Nation of Islam, things that were much more rigid. But both of them did not accept my full humanity as a Black queer being. Even when I was young, when my behavior seemed feminine and thus was a signpost for family members that I was possibly queer, they would both, the Islam and the Christianity, impose and police that behavior. Boys don't act that way. Boys don't play with dolls. Boys don't jump double dutch. Boys are never scared. Boys don't show their emotions. They would constantly reinforce this thing. And so it made me realize really early on that I could find no comfort or home in either of those spaces. And my mother, bless my mother for this, she rejected both of those religions really early on because she said, I refuse to be secondary. I will not be 
a man's rib, nor will I cover myself up for the benefit of protecting myself against him. Patriarchy has no place in my life. I reject both of these things outright. I need evidence, not faith. Mm. So my mother sort of gave me a path for me to feel okay with rejecting these things that I was told, oh, I should not reject and I should heed. My mother refused to heed. She refused to submit. And because she refused to submit, I had room to also refuse. That's powerful. And the proximity of it being your mother, right? That is, you are watching her create that space, carve that space up for herself. Like Audre Lorde would say, defining herself for herself and giving you the real life example of how to do that for yourself. That's so powerful. It was necessary. Mm. I'm so glad that my mother was that type of person. And so when I approached the prophets, because I was steeped in these things, I realized, particularly during my research, especially when I went to African scholars and African oral histories, Mm. I soon realized that all of this dogma about homosexuality is not something that is indigenously African, that it came with the Christian missionaries and the European colonizers. Esther Arma, who is a brilliant, brilliant artist activist from Ghana, she says, if you asked her great-grandparents, what is a homosexual? They would say, I have no idea. We don't have these things. And Americans or Westerners mistook that for oh, there were no homosexuals in Ghana. But if you had dug deeper and explained to her great-grandparents what you meant by homosexual, they would say, oh, you mean love. Mm. Because for her people, her tribes, her cultural traditions, there was no need to separate men who loved men or women who loved women or transgender people out of the community. They were all part of the community. And Esther Arma said, sexuality and gender was like the land. There were no boundaries. Mm. And that freed me. Oh, how that freed me to say, I can write this book because there is an African lineage where these ideas are true. They are true. And thank you for the African oral histories freed me to be, be able to discuss these things in a way that gave me the foundation to do so. Wow. When we started this conversation, we we're talking about James Baldwin and how you sort of adopted him as a spiritual godfather. And it sounds like these oral histories took that even further back, right? That it's not just Baldwin, the individual, it's this lineage, yes. it's this history, which is valid, which is central. It's not a marginal thing. It is a central history that again, very, very powerful. I imagine in sort of creating that space of protection and blessings and validation, everything that's needed. And even like nourishment, because, you know, like we've said, writing about this time, it's a brutal time. I think there's a way that we, our hearts need to be protected, that we don't lose ourselves in that story, in that time, but still wanting to be true. Right. To witness what was the truth. So I imagine that there's a like a well that you must have been drinking from, a spiritual well to nourish you. I often meditated in order to bring myself back from the breach. Mm. It's mentioned sort of in the prophets because yes, that is the 
period of our ancestors' degradation. The things I read about slavery, I tell you, Layla, the level of brutality, some of it shocked me. Oh. I was shocked by some of what I learned about that time period, things that American education purposely does not let us know because it would enrage every Black person to know. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, and that's saying a lot based on what we already do know. Right. right. Because we already know that it was dreadful, absolutely dreadful, untold horrors. And then I discovered that the horrors were even greater right. than what we had been or what we had already known. So I had to take breaks. I meditated. I played with the children in my family, took them out to eat and stuff like that. Being around children really helps you to restore what you feel is being snatched from you. Yeah. I often watched good movies, <laughs> um, listened to great music. I'm a big Janet Jackson fan. Yes. I, <laughs> <laughs> I listened to a lot of Janet, a lot of Whitney Houston and Sade mm. to help kind of restore and make me dance. So you do have to pull yourself away for a moment and then come back because it's amazing how art can do that to you. Art can have a physical impact on you. Yes. A psychological impact on you. So yes, you do have to restore. And, and it was also why I said it was so intentional for me in this book to make love big as I possibly could so that the reader too had some place to escape to. Yeah. I think for me, it was also helpful in sort of reminding me or telling me for the first time, maybe even that love was present there in all of this horror and love transcends so much and is so powerful. So yeah, I just want to say thank you for that because there was so much tenderness and vulnerability in this book, which was very, I don't know, it was kind of unexpected. There were moments of like, what the F is happening, right? And there were, and I don't want to read the next page, right? Like, I don't want to know how this is good because I already know how this is going to play out. Right. I know what's coming next. But then there were these moments before or afterwards of real tenderness and care and love that were so amazing. The other things that I was really struck by is that, I mean, you tell the story from many different perspectives. So there are a number of characters in the book, each with their own intention each of their own history, each of their own way of trying to cope. But you also told from the perspectives of the enslavers. Mm. And that was interesting for me because I was like, how did he research this? And what was this like for him to write about as these people justify to themselves why they're doing what they're doing? Why was it important to include that perspective as well? And what did you want to make sure didn't happen as you wrote those? Excellent questions. Yeah. Because initially I did not want to give white characters any perspective in this book. But then I realized that the central sin here is slavery. And that is not the burden of the enslaved. And so I needed to let those white characters have their say because I had to put the sin in their hands. Yeah, that, wow. That was their creation. So they had to explain to us why they did it. And so I had to let them explain. And their explanations are not justifications. No. And as your second part of your question about 
what I wanted to ensure didn't happen. What I wanted to ensure was that there was no such thing as the white savior. There really isn't. <laughs> you think there's about to be as you're reading it. And then it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> well, there is no such thing as the white savior. The white savior is the figment of the white imagination. Wow. And I wanted to make that clear with one character in particular, I won't spoil. Uh-huh. And I wanted also for these characters, these white characters to have some level of complexity to them. Yes. Like you have a white woman character who recognizes that she is both white and woman and has to navigate those intricate spaces. And you have a character who is white and also queer and has to navigate these spaces. A character who is white and not wealthy, who has to navigate spaces. But they also still have to answer for what they did yeah. through their whatever level of privilege or access that they had. Um, so I tried as best I could to sort of walk that line with not absolving them of their crimes because they did commit crimes, but also trying very hard to remember that they at least started as humans, as normal human beings. They started yes. that way. And then something happened that made them disgrace their own humanity. Wow. Yeah. I mean, as I read those characters, it was, I remember I start reading it. I'm like, Oh, don't let them off the hook. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it was like, it was interesting because you're right. Like they had their story. They had their struggles. They had things in their history. There was an interiority and a complexity to them. They weren't sort of just painted with a brush of they're all the same, this one thing, right? Called whiteness. They're each with their individual stories and they were not let off the hook, right? And there was great cruelty there enormous cruelty and and just what you said about that they disgraced their own humanity that was definitely the feeling that i was left with and not sort of pity or anything like that but why you know what i mean like why do this you know what i mean like what that was the struggle for me for the slave the plantation owner in particular he was the hardest character for me the right because i kept saying why mm. why would you do this why that was really hard to try to imagine why um, this character did this. But you know who helped me? Reading Thomas Jefferson. Wow. Okay. Thomas, uh, uh, old, ancient American president. Yeah. He wrote something called Notes on the State of Virginia, where he really revealed himself as a white person and what he thought about Black people. That really helped me understand where the white racist person imagines themselves on the moral scale and why they do the things that they do. That was really informative. What were some of those key things that came out of that for you that maybe you hadn't, hadn't clicked in place before? They really convinced themselves that Black people were some other species, yeah. that we were not human beings. And so it was okay to do to us what they did because we were actually not human beings. That God gave them permission. The Bible clearly says to them that they should own mm. and they should do whatever it is they determined to do. They, God gives them free reign. Also, there was this sense that what they were doing to us was a measure of civilizing us, that it was good what they were doing to us and that everything in the world as they knew it, everything that existed told them that they were the only human beings on the planet. 
Right. So if you're told and you believe that you are the only human being on the planet, it gives you license. Right. And your parents are telling you this. Their parents told them that. Their parents told them that for time immemorial until they encountered from the time that they encountered us on, you begin to believe that it is true. Yeah. Those people, I don't know if you watched the footage, storming the U.S. Capitol. Yeah. Were told and believed that they're the only human beings on the planet. And so they have free reign to do as they please. From 1492, when they came to this country and tried to wipe out the native population, Mm. to the 1500s, when they began enslaving the African population, to now, where they will react to the idea of Black lives mattering with untold disgust. Because they have been told that in order for their lives to matter, Black lives must not. Right. Yeah. You know, what I find so hard about this is there's a part in the book, and I'm totally butchering the language, but it's either Isaiah or Samuel realizes that to the enslavers, they are just the same as the horses that they tend to. And the other farm animals, that there's no difference to the enslaver. But I read that and I thought, yeah, but we don't treat animals with that level of cruelty. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, they're animals. We recognize them that they are a different species to us, but we don't do that. There's a level of sadism and just such violence that isn't even done to animals. And so I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head as well when you were talking about that. It's not just that Black and brown people are different, that they were seen, and by some people still are seen, as something other, different, not human in the same way white people are human, but also that in their treatment of us, I guess it's, I don't know, that they believe that it's a civilizing act or that they're somehow affirming that their own humanity. And I know Toni Morrison, and I again, I will butcher what she said, right? But it was kind of like, right, like if someone needs to be short for you to feel tall, like the issue is you, essentially. You'll know the words much better than I do. (laughs) She said, if you can only be tall when someone is on their knees, Mm. then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. I love it. Yes. <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed the delivery. Exactly. <laughs> love it. I love it. So the book is out in the world and you've had this incredible success with it. We are so proud of you. We're recording this right now in Black History Month. And thank you for your contributions to Black history, for your contribution to Black queer history. Thank you. Where are you at right now? I mean, and also, your book came out in a COVID world. Yes. So you've had to do this virtual book tour. And this work that you've been laboring on, you know, this labor of love you've been working on for so many years, it's complete and it's here. How are you feeling? Oh, in a state of disbelief. Mm. I wanted to be a writer since I was about six years old. My father bought me a comic book, a Wonder Woman comic book when I was four. Oh, wow. And I love Wonder Woman. And at six, I started rewriting the stories with me as her sidekick. Oh, I love it. Stuff like that. And 
I attempted to write my first novel after first reading um, Terry McMillan's first book, Mama, when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So writing has always been my dream. But then when the dream actually comes true, you've held it for so long and for so long believed that it would not come true, that when it does, you still can't believe it. And I am sitting in a space of utter disbelief, but also utter gratitude, because for the most part, it's been received in a way that I had not anticipated. People are really receiving it with the intention that I, I put it out into the world with. And some critics really like it. Some readers really like it. I got a, a message on Instagram from a young Black queer man who said, Mr. Jones, this is the book I was waiting for. I think he was 17 years old. And wow. that just struck me in the chest. But I still feel like this is happening to someone else, that it's me observing it as it transpires, but there's another Robert that it's happening to. But I will say that there was one moment where it came close to me actually feeling like, oh my God, this is happening to me, mm. was my editor, agent, and publicist sent me pictures of my book up on a billboard in Penn Station in New York City. Oh, wow. And that was just like, wow, this happened to me. Yes. That was the first time that it felt like it was really, truly happening. But I am in an utter state of gratitude for all of the kind words that people have been saying. I just, thank you. <laughs> oh, you know, the, the weird thing about being a writer is that it's not like being say a real celebrity, right? It's not, <laughs> your life largely stays the same, except a lot more people somehow know your name, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> I resonate with what you're saying because there's, it's sort of a bit, a little bit surreal. And it's also hard to, I know for myself, at least it's hard to imagine those numbers of people reading your book, reading things that you wrote, like you said, right, in the margins, right, on the fringes at three o'clock in the morning or on the train, on the bus, whenever you could find the spare time to do it. Right. It's surreal thinking that a stranger in, I don't know, South Africa is reading your book. I'm with you. <laughs> that, by the way, was another moment that I actually started crying mm. when Quirkus Riverrun told me that the book would be available in South Africa because I didn't think that it would be available on the continent. But the fact that it is there, I feel so connected with the rest of the diaspora as a result of that. I'm not one of those African-Americans who feels that Black Brits or continental Africans or Black Brazilians are not my kin. Right. I feel a whole part of the African diaspora and the book being in South Africa is such a balm for me. I'm so glad that South Africans will be reading this work. Oh. I am so humbled by that. I'm so happy for you. I'm so, and I, I want to see it everywhere and we will be sharing it everywhere. Robert, okay, final two questions. What's next? Or are you ready for next? I hope so. <laughs> and I hope next doesn't take me 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> it needed some time. It needed some time, but you got it now. My agent says, now that I got this out of my system, the next one will be easier. I actually was 40 pages into a second novel when 
the profits were sold to my U.S. publisher. Oh, wow. And so hopefully I'll get soon to return to that. But right now I can't because everything is profits yeah. driven. The, pro- the profits driven. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> but my focus is the profits now. And so I'm in that space. And in order to continue on the new work, I have to like divest myself of the profits and be able to hear what these characters, these new characters are telling me. Yes. But what I can tell you is that the second novel takes place in the late 1980s in New York City. So it's quite different from The Prophets. Well, you know, Robert, whatever it is, I'm there. Like, as soon as it's ready, I'll be like, Robert, give me a copy. I want a copy. <laughs> so yes, I, hopefully another novel within the next couple of years I'll have ready for, for people to read. <laughs> Cannot wait. You're just getting started. And, you know, one of my my actual lifelong dream, right, is to leave behind a stack of books, like dozens of books that I know that I poured everything that God made me, like all of these skills and this ability to express myself. And I leave behind, just like Toni Morrison did, just like Octavia Butler did, just like Audre Lorde did, this stack of books. And I can see that for you. I can see you doing it. And if if The Prophets is the only book you were ever to write, I mean, that just in itself is so powerful, but I know that there's so much more that's forthcoming and I can't wait to read all of it. Thank you so much, Layla. That means a great deal to me coming from you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so as we wrap up our conversation, I just want to remind people that The Prophets is our book of the month, our very first book for Good Ancestor Book Club, Book of March. We'll put this all in the show notes. You can purchase the profits from our Good Ancestor Bookshop. Bookshop.org is a site that supports independent booksellers. And so when you buy through our link, you'll be supporting an independent bookstore. And we have an affiliate that we make from that as well. We'll be interviewing Robert in deeper conversation at the end of March, March 25th, for our Patreon community book club. If you would like to join that conversation, make sure to join our Patreon. It's Good Ancestor Podcast. If you're listening to this conversation after March, if you join the book club community, you'll be able to go back and listen to that conversation. It will be there. There will be a recording for you to dive into. And we'll be looking at all the characters, all the themes. There are so many interesting people in this book that we ha- we hadn't even touched on at, um, all, at all, right? And so we're going to be doing that in that conversation And it's going to be a much more interactive event with our listeners and people able to ask Robert questions. So do join us for that and join us for future book club events as well. So Robert, our final question, and again, it's so apt that this is the book that we're talking about because the ancestors are a huge part of this book and a huge part of your story. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? To be a good ancestor. You must give your progeny something to use. You must give them a path to go down, to continue to go down. You as an ancestor might not make it by virtue of being an ancestor that says that you did not make it, but you did make a way. And I think a good ancestor makes a way. And we have so many. We have so many good ancestors, not just the ones that whose names we know, but the ones whose names we don't know, who survived just so that Layla, you and I could still be here, that they dreamed us, 
They dreamed that if there would be a day where you and I could do the things that we're doing right now, that we could tell these stories, that we could venerate them and honor them by being good people, by being good human beings, by doing the work, by making the world a bit more beautiful than it was before we got here, mm. of breaking bread with one another and looking at each other and truly saying, as Maya Angelou once said, good morning and meaning it. That is what the work of a good ancestor is. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor. <laughs>